0: Good to see you all, and wonderful to be able to turn to God's Word together. We're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, but we're going to go back to the beginning, to John chapter 1. And uh, after proceeding as far as we have, especially with the celebration of Christmas before us, we're going to go back and uh, read through John 1 again, and uh, I think we will read it somewhat differently just because of what we have already learned in the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John. So when we began our study in the Gospel of John, verse by verse, we of course began in the beginning, and we are reminded of the fact that John begins in the beginning, just like the book of Genesis begins in the beginning. As Genesis begins in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, setting the entire narrative of Scripture and all of biblical history in motion. So in one sense, John capitulates that, putting the new covenant in motion in John chapter one, also in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, when you think of people imagining Christmas, what are the things we need to think carefully about it is the fact that most people confuse what Christmas is all about. Now, you're saying, well, yeah, that's what every Christian with the slightest bit of observation has the ability to say. Yes. But my statement is a little bit more radical than that. My statement is that most people who think that they are Christians, thinking Christianly, miss the greatest thrust of what Christmas is about the festival of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. if you listen to the chatter of the of the culture around us you'll 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 notice that baby jesus is not much of a threat at least baby jesus is not considered to be much of a threat and not not by most in the society so they they're willing to have a nativity scene not on a public park property as you know for separation of church and state but that argument comes just about every year or so, so much so now that there are fewer of those stories because fewer public spaces now have even a nativity scene. But the nativity scene shows, shows little Jesus, meek and mild, and, uh, and he was, as, as we shall ponder in a few moments, uh, maybe the most amazing reality of Christmas as a, as a celebration of the coming of Christ, when we think about Christ coming as an infant, as we're going to ponder together, that is more shocking and should be more shocking to us theologically than we might first think. But nonetheless, when when you begin the Christmas story here, as, as John rightly does, recapitulating Genesis, and when you begin in the beginning, then we find out before we know anything else about this one who is coming that he is the word and the Word was with God, that's the the Trinitarian fellowship, and the Word was God, fully divine. So already, John puts this right in our face. Now, you you have the same kind of of message that comes in the infancy narratives in Matthew and in Luke. You, you, You have the same kind of declaration, but it comes in pieces, a little bit to Mary, and a little bit to, to Zechariah, a little bit through, through John, a little bit by the angel to Joseph. One of the great gifts of the gospel of John, which is one of the, the reasons we, we understand the Holy Spirit gave us not just Matthew, and not just Luke, and Mark, and John, but He gave us all four of them in a superintendency, that's Warfield's old word, a superintendency, so that we would have all that we need. John comes as the fourth gospel, not just because Matthew, Mark, and Luke being the synoptic gospels are are closer together, but because in a very rightful sense, he just theologically explains so much of what sequentially we learned in the synoptic gospels. And and so John goes in the beginning, and he tells us right away that the word is divine, and, and not just divine, by being in the presence of God, but the fact that he is God. He was in the beginning with God. All kinds of misconceptions that even people think themselves Christians think about. For one thing, one of the questions that has to be asked is, is Jesus something new in the experience of the Father? Because Martin Luther picked this up during the time of the Reformation. He picked it up just in common German Christian practices of Christmas. It was as if God came up with the idea of Jesus, and thus we have Christmas. And and if you're not careful, there are Christians who will tell the Christmas story this way, and may even describe the gospel this way. They'll say something like, well, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth, and he created the garden, and he put the man and the woman in it, and basically, had sin not happened, Jesus would not have been necessary. But, but sin did happen, and so God has to have a plan B. Plan A would have been the garden, no sin, communion with Adam and Eve forever, and all those who have come after them. There'd be no need for Jesus. But sin does happen, so now there's the need for a redeemer, and God comes up with Jesus as his redeeming plan. Now, you recognize that as contrary to Scripture. You recognize that as incompatible with the entire flow of Scripture. You recognize that as heresy. But you have to recognize that what what, what some people call folk religion and, and now is, is more often called common lived religion by sociologists, it's not Christianity. It has Christian elements, but it's not Christianity. The sad thing is that if at point of life or death, a lot of people who consider themselves Christians had to even tell the great flow of biblical history, they would get it not just a little bit wrong, but horrifyingly wrong. This is why that team led by Christian Smith, uh, who, was, uh, who was then at the University of Virginia, is now at the University of Notre Dame, did this massive study of young people in, in uh, Christian churches. And I, I started to say evangelical, that wouldn't be true. Evangelical, yes, but also mainline and really across the board theologically. And and this is where his research indicated that the basic theology of these teenagers and young adults was what he called moralistic therapeutic deism or MTD. It wasn't Christianity. And uh, we, we certainly believe it would be different amongst our children and, and young people, but I mean, here's, here's the thing. If they had to recapitulate just the storyline of Scripture, could they get it right? It, how, how many Christians could describe Jesus Christ without heresy? I don't just mean not getting it completely filled out with every point right. How many people could describe Christ as He's revealed in the New Testament without committing Outright heresy. It's it's difficult, but notice notice how notice how this comes along here. It's almost as if I say that tongue in cheek. It's almost as if the Gospel of John is written to answer all of the hardest questions in the introduction. There, there's there's no wait for the bottom line. There there is no stringing us out for a, a Conclusion, there's no suspense in the gospel of John, not in this sense. And so we are told right away that the word is God, is with God, and then we are told that he's the agent of creation, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. And he, the life was the life of the world, it's the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, just hold that for a moment, and just for the sake of time, we're going to remind ourselves of of the announcement about John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then we come back in verse 9, that true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, There were certain theological assumptions that were common to the the time of the Bible. You could could take this all the way back to the Old Testament. You can include the Egyptians and the Canaanites, the the Mesopotamians, just about everyone. You You could look at the entire theological superstructure of the ancient world You could certainly look at the Greek and the Romans. You could put all that context together. And one thing seemed to be absolutely certain, and and that is that there was a distinction between the divine and the human such that the worst thing that could happen to a god was to become a human. So, that's one of the reasons why when we read the New Testament, we come across statements that do not shock us as they would have shocked someone in the time of the Bible. Now, when uh, I think a secular person reads Matthew and Luke, they find shocking material. It's shocking. Just given their secular sentiment and worldview, Matthew and and Luke are shocking. I mean, first of all, you've got... uh, You've got angels talking to, well, it's an angel. You have an angel talking to Joseph uh, twice. Then you've got an angel appearing to Mary. You put Matthew and Luke together. You've got an angel appearing to to Zechariah. You've got uh, not just one miraculous birth, that is Jesus conceived in Mary by the Holy Ghost, but you've got also uh, Elizabeth. Who, at, at, though advanced of age and beyond the, the, the age of bearing a child, like Sarah in the Old Testament, uh, she is given a pregnancy and, and she gives birth to John. It's just miracle after miracle. You've got the heavenly host declaring the birth of Jesus to shepherds on a hillside. The, you have all of these things, and so one of the liberal New Testament scholars at the end of the of the uh, of the nineteenth century said it is, in his words, elaborate and excessive supernaturalism. you got to love that. Someone with the audacity to read the Bible and say, that's just too much supernaturalism. I can take a little bit. I can remember the first time I I read that criticism when I was like a 20-year-old seminary student, and it, it made me wonder, well, what exactly is an acceptable level of supernaturalism? You know a comic book. You know Captain Marvel. You know what? What? What would an acceptable level of supernaturalism be? That's one of the most amazing things about the Scripture. There, there is no rising and falling of supernaturalism in the worldview of the Bible. It begins in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Everything is supernatural. What uh, God's always described as being infinite in his perfections. He doesn't wax, he doesn't wane. He's not more supernatural here and less supernatural there. Well, when we come to John and, and we, th- we we compare John to the Synoptic Gospels, well, we don't have a lot of the accoutrements of, uh, of, of Christmas that we have in the Synoptics. There's, there's at this point... No Mary and no Joseph. There's at this point uh, no manger. There's no Bethlehem. At this point, there, there's, there's nothing told us in this gospel in the opening chapter about angels speaking to anyone, Zechariah, Joseph, or Mary. Uh, there is also at this point uh, no clear messianic Identity. John's purpose, and we've been seeing this going through this verse by verse. John's purpose, first of all, more than anything else, is to shake us and make us face the fact that Jesus Christ is truly God. God in human flesh. The ancients understood the problem of human flesh the most important problem of human flesh is mortality. All of us will die. And that flies in the face of any claim of eternal existence. To the ancient mind, and to so many who are alive today, Human status is to be despised. One of the things we note in kind of an incipient anti-humanism in the culture these days is that the humanness of being human is increasingly described as a problem we have to overcome. There's a, you won't be surprised, much of this is headquartered in Silicon Valley. There's an entire new movement of transhumanism, and this is not a small movement, and some of you may know that you have major figures in Silicon Valley who are putting billions and billions of dollars into this transhumanist research. Um, Artificial intelligence is a part of it. You know, can we upload ourselves to the cloud so that we never die? In which our intelligence goes on living somehow in a disembodied state? Or like Ray Kurzweil and those who are working with him? Can we look to advances in modern medicine and robotics and and uh, synthetic organs, and all the rest, and and, and consider the fact that we ourselves might be able to turn uh, ourselves into a transhumanist, and then you've got, you know, major figures writing books about humanity now evolving into a, a, a new species reality beyond death, and you've got a former president of the United States Barack Obama endorsing the book as if it would be a great thing if human beings could evolve as a species to the next step in which we would not experience death. Ancient Gnosticism, not a problem really in the time of the Old Testament, but already very present by the time you get the New Testament, the Gospel of John and the letters of John are clearly written in light of the Gnostic heresies the Gnostics are, are those primarily emerging from a Greek philosophical tradition that, that say that the, the key to, to life and, and meaning and, uh, and, and ultimate achievement is reaching a level of a certain gnosis or knowledge. It's almost always a secret knowledge. Gnostic groups are almost always a secret group. And uh, the initiated or the Illuminati are those who, who have received the illumination and they've received the gnosis, but the whole point of the Gnostics was that uh, intelligence was far superior to physical existence in such a way that we are intelligences trapped in a corporeal body and that salvation comes by freeing our intelligence from our physical body. The, and it, it's almost like the transhumanist uh, heresy written back Two and 3,000 years. So what we're trying to do, and the Gnostics would say, is get over being trapped in a body. Now, the Gnostics are helpful to us right here because in their writings, they help to tell us why it is so bad to be in a body, okay? It is bad to be in a body if you're a Gnostic. If you think that all God created us to be was an intelligence then that intelligence does seem to be trapped in a body. And, and, and not only that, just consider, let's just take some, a symbol our society will understand, Albert Einstein. Okay, so Albert Einstein is considered to be the smartest man on the planet. He developed both the special and the general theories of relativity. He was considered somewhat a nut, even as a boy, being considered not even a good student. But before the, uh, the, the, the 20th century had hardly begun, he came up with this theory of relativity that happened to have been proven by, uh, by a, a uni- unique uh, observational uh, opportunity. It happened to be proven very shortly after the beginning of the, of the 20th century in such a way that they came to the conclusion that, that matter and light and energy are related to each other relatively, Uh, you know, the bend in time that can can take place. I realize that's not what you came for, for Sunday school this morning. But the point is this, here's Albert Einstein, and Einstein's own personal angst was that he didn't believe in life after death, and he had all these incredible, fertile ideas in his brain when he died. So, from a purely secular viewpoint, nature works the wrong way. Because we die with our highest degree of knowledge and with perhaps the most fertile ideas on our brain. And when the oxygen and the blood no longer go to the brain, the brain just dies. And you know what happened after Einstein died? They took out his brain. And a guy took it across the country in hopes that one day there would be an opportunity to study this brain and maybe even one day to revivify this brain and we could bring Einstein back and he could pick up the conversation where he left off. No, the Gnostics aren't wrong. Having a body is uh, its a problematic thing. For one thing, our body can be only in one place at one time. It, it's really hard to operate as Lord and King of the universe if your body's in one place at one time. Not only in one place at one time, but I mean, we are spectacularly finite, tiny creatures in the midst of this massive cosmos. If uh, it's we're, we're not only in one place at one time, we're in one tiny, tiny place on a tiny, tiny place on a tiny, tiny place in, in, in any place at, at one time. And 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 we're incredibly needy. That's the thing, you know. I'm already hungry, and I'm already thinking of lunch. And and I'll I'll be finished with lunch, and shortly thereafter I'll be thinking of dinner. And along the way there could be a Christmas cookie. And I have hunger that I don't even want to think about. You know that I I I don't I don't I don't need a second cookie. No one needs a second cookie. You didn't need the first cookie, but I have I have desire for that cookie, and that desire often wins out. And 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 then this we're dirty, we leak. It's not good. Uh, it requires massive hygienic energy just to make ourselves tolerable to ourselves, much less to anyone else. And when you go to a place that doesn't have that, that hygienic investment, you come to a whole new understanding of humanity. It's, it's, it's bad, and, uh, and it's humiliating. It's humiliating. We get sick. And when we get sick, we sometimes even get what Martin Luther called the altogether's, which he said was just the ultimate sign of our flesh. We can explode everywhere at once. And we can feel so bad we want to die. And then as soon as we're over it, we're hungry. And we eat again. It is humiliating. And not only that, we, we, we start out badly. We, we start out unable to do anything for ourselves. We start out without any consciousness of ourselves. We don't even start out able to focus our eyes in any particular way. There is no more defenseless creature on earth than a human infant. And a, and a human infant is not operational for a very long time. And then it's a very limited operation. And, uh, And we're mammals, we're mammals, so that means the mothers nurse their young. So that means actually to get this child even started in life, a mother has to give this baby an enormous amount of time and attention and energy, and even has to suckle this baby in, in such a way and nurse this baby, and, and that's, a, that's inefficient, and it's, it's, it's humiliating from the perspective of those who were, especially be Gnostics, it's, it's humiliating. It just demonstrates need. And, 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 and what the Gnostics hated about being human was this constant neediness. And we, we do need. And the amazing thing is, is that it both spans of the human life, the needs are massive. At, at the beginning of life and at the end of life. Human flesh is easily wounded. We burn, we cut, we bleed. No decent God would take on human flesh. What you find in John chapter 1 is intended to be theologically shocking. John doesn't hold this back What should shock us is how John hits us with all of this in the beginning, even using the phrase in the beginning. And and by the time you get just, say, 18 verses into John chapter 1, the climax has come when you get to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen His glory. There's John just exploding the whole formula. He doesn't tell us, here was this baby born, and this is a really sweet story. Now, now follow this story. And uh, this baby's born in Bethlehem, and uh, to, to just common parents, and uh, the, uh, the conception's going to be an interesting part of the story, but hold that for a minute. Just think about the baby. Uh, you're you're going to watch this baby, and this baby's going to do amazing things. This, is, this baby's going to grow up. He's going to increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And, uh, and and people are going to begin to understand that this is a very special baby. And then that understanding that this is a very special baby is eventually going to be uh, elaborated and extended in understanding that this baby just might be the son of David. And so in the Synoptic Gospels, you see this in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. It comes about chapter 12, where Jesus performs a miracle, and the crowd begins to ask, could this be the son of David? And so the, and, but even in Matthew, you don't have the declaration of the deity of Christ in any clear way. You have it demonstrated, but you don't have it declared in a clear way until Matthew chapter 16, where it's Peter who says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just as looking at the synoptics, you, you've got to get into it. Now, Now the, again, there's a complete consistency, and as a matter of fact, there there. You you begin to see when you read the synoptics, I should have understood exactly what I was being told then. I I, I should have understood more of what it meant when the angel was speaking to Mary about this child. I I should have understood more about what it meant when the angel even spoke to Joseph about the child. I I, I should have paid more attention to that. But it's not so with John. John doesn't begin with a baby. He doesn't begin with Bethlehem. He begins with a shocking reality that the Word became flesh. But you also note, he's extremely careful to tell us that the Word is still the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Now, what what would be the glory of this Word become flesh? It is the glory as the only begotten Son, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Is this God? Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. I think most of us as Christians, and and I mean by this, theologically matured and maturing, biblically knowledgeable Christians, a, a part of what can happen to us is that the shock of the gospel can dissipate somewhat. And, and the shock of the gospel is absolutely massive. It, the, the more the gospel makes sense, the more you ought to worry about your theological understanding. I don't mean make sense as if, makes sense because God tells us this is the gospel. I mean, make sense as if, had you heard this the first time and it had been proposed to you as the gospel, this would have made sense to you. I go back to Martin Luther, the great reformer, because in so many ways, looking at John 1, he, he, he understands, he, he makes very clear that if you understand the flow of biblical history, when you get to Genesis 3 in the fall, here's shocking reality number one. Well, let's just say shocking reality number one is God creates a world because God doesn't need anything. There's no need in God. So let's, let's, let's make that shocking reality number one that God creates a cosmos in the first place. Why? He does so for His glory, but, but He has no need in Himself. He's completely self-sufficient. So why did He create something outside of Himself? Well, it was for His glory. We can't ever fully understand that. He ordained and decreed that it should happen, and uh, and, and He did. That's shocking reality number one. If, if, In other words, if material existence has any explanation, its only explanation is in a sovereign God creating it for His glory, which means the Gnostic beginning point is a false beginning point. That is to say, we don't hate the material world because God made the material world for, world for His glory. But it is completely distinct from Himself. The material world completely distinct from the, the immaterial. The, the creation is infinitely and eternally distinct from the Creator. But shocking reality number two does go to Genesis chapter three because shocking reality number two is that human sin happens and God does not undo creation. He he doesn't say, all right, in view of the fact that the one creature I made in my image has rebelled against me, I shall just bring all that I gave existence into non-existence. I will just... Destroy it. So that's that's shocking reality number two. Just to, just in our flow of thinking it through, shocking reality number three is that God makes covenant with Israel. God makes covenant promises to a particular nation, and and, and the least of all nations, not the strongest and, and not the largest, but the least of all nations, and sometimes even the most rebellious and cantankerous of all nations, but He chooses this one nation and makes covenant with this nation in order to show His glory and to fulfill His purposes. And, and even after that nation rebels, he, he does not break covenant, as He says in Ezekiel is for the sake of his own name that he maintains this covenant. But then the great shocking reality of all is the incarnation, the fact that God accomplishes the salvation he promises precisely through sending his own pre-existent son. Here's where the early church had to figure this out. Is this God's plan B? No, it can't be God's plan B because God can't have a plan B. But also, when we're thinking about the second person of the Trinity, the son, we're not talking about a, a a divine person that the Father brought into existence at this point to fulfill His plan. Rather, as as the Council of Nicaea rightly says, there never was a time when the Son was not. Now, John helps us to understand that by demonstrating that it was the Son, the eternal Logos, the Word, who made the world. So the cosmos itself was made by the Son, as the direct agent of creation. So so John is shocking us here in a way that we can't read the words and miss that the one who made creation is now entering creation. Again, that should be so spellbinding and so shocking that we just pause because John would have expected that of, of those who were reading his gospel. Seriously? The one who made creation, entered creation... All the the various paganisms of the world would have put it the other way around. It's about apotheosis or divinization. It's not about the creator entering into his own creation. That is a a humbling that comes down to horrifying. Now, Paul in Philippians chapter 2 will describe this beautifully to us. He considered it not robbery. To obey the Father, and 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 he he emptied himself, taking on taking on humanity. Now, when again, when he says he emptied himself in Philippians chapter two, this doesn't mean that he gave up his divine authority and power. it, it, it did mean that he gave up more than anything else. His his divine status of distance from His creation. And as Paul says, He didn't take on the form of a man. He became a man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When we think of the baby in, in Bethlehem, and of course, there's nothing in the Bible about Stable, but there is a manger, which is just about perfectly sized into which to hold a human infant. When you think about that baby, and you think about the fact that millions and millions of images or imaginative depictions of that baby are on Christmas cards and Christmas arts and all over the world, and 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 people open those cards and go, "Isn't that sweet? Isn't that cute?" This one's medieval, this one's renaissance, this one's modern, the modern one's generally bad. You know, this is a, this is, this is a nice picture, and you know, Christmas cards are often made, so you can just kind of tilt them and put them on the table and open them up, and you can look at them, and people walk by. Well, if, if, if you understood what really happened, you couldn't walk by. Just think of the, of the shepherds. The angelic host appears to the, to the shepherds saying, good news, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They told the shepherds how they would find him. The shepherds did not go merely to see. They went to worship. What, what else could you do? But, but just think of how awkward that must have felt. And, and we don't know all that they knew. We know what the angels declare, so they knew that much, but they probably didn't know anything more than that. I mean, when they knelt before that baby, they were looking at the face of the one who had created the entire cosmos. And even at that moment, even at that moment as an infant is holding together the entire cosmos by His power and will. Mary and I were at a wedding yesterday. I was thinking of being here and talking about John 1 this morning, and there was a a family that came by with just a little baby, fifth child to this wonderful family, the baby in a little carrier. You look down at that baby and you think, it can't do anything. It can't even keep itself awake. It's sleeping. The entire world is passing by. It can't stop anything from happening. It can't make anything happen. But that babe in the manger made everything happen. It's the most astounding reality. I think most Christians, and and, and, I don't want to say most Christians, that's that's not true. Christians are those who know Christ. But many who think themselves Christians actually hold to an adoptionist heresy. And, And adoptionism is one of the most ancient Christian heresies in which Jesus, at some point in adult development, is adopted by the Father for his redeeming purpose. Now, why would an adoptionist Christology be attractive? Well, it's because you don't have to worry about anything that comes before when that divine adoption would have taken place. So basically, the public ministry of Jesus, or at some point in the public ministry of Jesus, but you basically say, okay, he was just like a normal human doing normal human things, although undoubtedly morally superior to others. And, uh, and, 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 and so all that early part of Jesus' life, the, the, the infancy and the toddlerhood and, the, and the, the early childhood, we'll just fast forward through all of that. But this is not biblically allowable. There's, there's, there's no gospel, not one of the four of them, that allows any form of, of an adoptionist Christology. In verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. The word flesh isn't accidental. It, it, it's in our face. He became flesh. That's the great shock. Flesh. Again, it bleeds, it wounds, it, it develops. What, 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 what is this? How, how can we explain this? The reality is we can't explain it much, which is why speculation about the childhood of Jesus is almost always entirely wrong. And Tyler tried to do this, you know, years ago. The, the first reason it's wrong is because you have to make it all up. That's a hint. And and, and, and what are you going to make up? How are you going to write about the five-year-old Jesus? How, how are you going to invent your imagination of the five-year-old Jesus? Wait, is a five-year-old Jesus walking by and his mother's cracking an egg and he goes, <clears throat> I made that. I mean, what is this? No, you can't do that. We aren't given this. Some some of the pseudepigraphic and tradition-based stories about Jesus are Jesus, for instance, seeing a dead bird and and raising it to life. And then otherwise, of Jesus making clay birds, just as an avocation, Jesus will make birds out of clay, and then they would spring to life. Now, by the way, that doesn't fit even what we know about Jesus, because uh, Jesus wouldn't need clay. Jesus made the teeming billions and trillions of birds without clay. He made them out of nothing. But nonetheless, it's just dangerous. And then, you know, we're given a glimpse. We're given a glimpse of Jesus in the temple. We're given that. We're we're told that he increased in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man. But we have no information about his childhood illnesses. We have no indication of the notches on the wall in uh, Nazareth where Joseph scratched a line marking how Jesus had grown taller. We're just told he he increased in stature. We're, We're told that Jesus grew until he was ready for the public ministry that the Father had assigned him to do. But make no mistake, the childhood was a part of his public ministry. This is where we as Christians have to be careful. This right here is a part of the public ministry of Jesus. This is, this is a part of Jesus' obedience to the Father. It was the Father's will and that, that his obedience be demonstrated in a manger, in, in having to be taken to Egypt for preservation. And in growing in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. We're told all we need to know. But what we're told is He assumed flesh. Real flesh. Now by the way, here's another Christian misconception we will correct here at the end. Jesus is incarnate now. Now. The incarnation was not a passing missiological and and messianic moment in the life of God. Jesus did not assume human flesh only to abandon it Gnostic style and go back to his pre-incarnation state without a body. He has a body right now. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And not only that, he has a resurrection body, and that resurrection body is at least according to the Gospels a little bit different than our body right now. It's a body that can eat. There will be a married supper of the Lamb. But you know what? Somehow, I don't even understand this. It's a body that will eat and not leak. I'm all for that. And it looks like the eating will be entirely worshipped not because of need, as we know in this life. Jesus was able to pass through walls. We don't really understand that either. That's not Captain Marvel. That's resurrection body. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that our body will be as His. I don't understand all that that means. But you know what it means? It means that throughout eternity, there never will be a time when Christ will not have a body. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish and have everlasting life. That isn't the story of Jesus condescending and coming to take on flesh, to take on a body for a while for us. It means He identifies with us, with His redeemed forever. So, Merry Christmas. In 1 John, John will make this point all over again, You know, which this is the, the, the Jesus we have seen with our eyes, we've touched with our hands. Real. Real flesh, real Jesus, real incarnation, real Messiah, real Savior, real shocking. So I was praying, thinking about being here this morning as we're together. I just prayed this morning we'd be shocked together. If there is the slightest bit of Gnosticism in us, then feel the repugnance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and then give it to Jesus. Let there be no Gnosticism amongst us. Let there be only the great joy and worship of knowing That God loved us so much that he sent his son to take on our flesh. And of course, to die as our substitute, which he could only do in our flesh. And then to be the first of all those who would follow him by his power in the resurrection. So Luther said, when you look at the manger... You need to look at the wood and remember that the wood that holds Jesus in a manger is pointing to the wood that will hold Jesus to a cross. But just remember this the body of Jesus in the manger will become the resurrection body that is actually the promise of our resurrection by Him. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in every single word of Scripture. Father, thank you for letting us go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John. Thank you for showing us the word main flesh. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.